This is Luminous, Conversations on Sacred Arts, coming to you from the Institute of Sacred Arts at St. Vladimir's Seminary in Yonkers, New York, and I'm Peter Butenev. Welcome. I think when we speak of sacred arts, a lot of people will first think of the visual arts, notably painting, perhaps sculpture. And then they can be pretty easily reminded that poetry, literature, music are among the arts that can be consecrated to sacred use. And then there's architecture, the buildings that we behold from the outside and inhabit on the inside, and the context for potentially sacred encounter. Undoubtedly, among the sacred arts, architecture together with design of furnishings of all kinds that tacitly or explicitly invite sacred use. Our guest today is Andrew Gould, and I'd call him one of the most important and gifted artists working today in areas of design and architecture. He's designed dozens of new buildings, and many of them are churches of a character and a quality that are apparent from the moment you behold them. His designs are diverse in their character, and yet, as with all great artists, there's a thread that allows you to recognize a building as one of his works. Andrew has opinions about his work, about art, about the sacred, and he gives voice to them in searching essays, many of them published in the Orthodox Arts Journal, which he helped to conceive with his close colleague, Jonathan Pajot. I'm excited to be talking with you today, Andrew. Welcome. Thank you, uh, thank you for being here. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. This is an episode I think a lot of our friends will be really excited to to tune into. Uh, I'd say one of the unexpected things that came up in preparation for this episode is you sent us a few musical examples of... Um, of recorder, including uh, a YouTube video of yourself playing the recorder. In fact, it was like this this double recorder that I hadn't seen in use before. Uh, tell us about that, just as a kind of a, a way into our conversation. Ah, well, I, I I love music. I'm not a particularly talented musician. I must confess a. Uh, a jealousy for some of my friends who are real musicians for whom it comes easy to them. Um, for me, music is a, uh, a diversion from my work with the visual arts. I, I, I'm so deeply committed mentally in the, in the work that I do that music is a huge relief to me to be able to do something that's completely non-visual. Um, and several times a day, I'll take a break from my office and I'll, I'll go home and I'll, I'll play recorders or piano or, or other instruments. And I, I do a lot of arranging of music, my own, my own composing. Um, mm. and, you know, and again, I, I don't, I don't have any, you know, notion that any of this is, is anything great, but it, it but it's, it's the most joyful way for me to, to relax oh. is, and specifically Baroque music. I don't know why, but, you know, everyone's brain works at a certain sort of pattern and wavelength. And for me, it's it's Baroque music is, is mm. you know, sort of what instantly puts my, my mind at ease. Um, so I enjoy playing recorder at home and and I, I have an, instru- an interest in medieval instruments. Um, 
in including what's called a double recorder. It's it's essentially two recorders attached together, um, pitched about a, a fourth apart from one another, so that you can play harmony and counterpoint um, on the same instrument. Um, you know, this instrument you can you can see these in medieval illustrations and carvings. You know, pictures of angels and, and shepherds playing a double piped mm-hmm. instrument. Um, they they died out in the 16th century um, because of their their limited range, their limited ability to modulate. They couldn't keep up with music as it was getting more sophisticated right, um, but right. I, I i i had one made by by an instrument maker and have been arranging my own music for it and it's something i hmm. enjoy doing hmm. uh, it, it's been shown again and again that um periodically taking a break from one's work and and indulging in some other creative act often music is mentioned by the way um enhances the the creative process um, is it is it anything more than that for you in a sense where you could uh, find some discernible influence in what you're doing musically uh, in uh, the design work it, itself? Is there any intersection that that you could identify? Well, I, I think so. Um, you know, there's several. There's several stages of design work. Um, you know, there's the initial concept development, um, and then there's the developing of various details one wants to use. But then, probably the most important stage is sort of refinement and discernment, where one tries to adjust everything to make it all seem that it fits together as a unified whole that speaks with one harmonious voice. It's a process of 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 editing, you know, one one often will go into a design project thinking that you know of a bunch of details that I really want to use, or I might go into it thinking of a big of a big concept that I want to express. But then once it all starts to come together, and I step back and look at it, not all the parts fit, and I have to say, well, I really wanted to use this detail, but it's it just does not fit with the whole that's emerging. So I'll set that aside. Maybe I'll use it another day on another project. And and maybe I'll think of a detail from elsewhere that that works in this context, and mm. and I'll gradually try to make the building more elegant, meaning that that every every part of the building seems harmonious, every part of it flows smoothly into the next. All of the proportional systems are consonant with one another. All of the colors are consonant. In this process of of editing and refinement, until we end up with something something elegant. Um, I do find that music helps with that, that, that if I listen mm. to, to highly, highly refined and complex Baroque music, you know, perhaps, uh, an Italian concerto grosso of the 17th century, you know, that has different instruments coming out, um, large and small orchestras playing against one another. Um, you know, that does help my brain, you know, get into that mode of, of, of refinement. Mm-hmm. Um, you've raised many issues <laughs> that I would love to come back to. You know, um, I often close luminous conversations with questions around what we think sacred actually means. I'd like to open our conversation with that because I don't want it to just go away. And, and it's so central to your work. Um, 
sacred is one of these words like like spiritual, which can mean everything and nothing. And um, what does it mean for you? And and perhaps especially when it comes to your work and to the arts. Well, of course, on on the most practical level, the sacred arts are the things that we set apart from the regular things of our our day-to-day existence that we set them apart because they 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 work for us in the service of a higher purpose they point they point to god or to or to whatever else we may consider um high um so in the context of 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 liturgical art of in the context of the church um Sacred art are those things that help us worship God, those things that we place in the sacred temple um, as the as the as the structure of our worship. Um, but to, to me, it is not only those things that are sacred. Um, I consider many of the things of the secular world to be culturally sacred um, art museums, for instance. Um, symphonic concerts um the the university settings um and any of these types of institutions that that sort of function as as arcs of culture as arts institutions whose purpose is to to find the best and to to preserve that and to present it in its in its ideal form in its ideal setting um I think all all of this is a is a sacred act, and mm. and it's very analogous to what churches do. That just as just as the function of an art museum is to provide a space in which art can be shown off to best effect, where it's ideally lit, where it's quiet, where it's where it's it's well explained with labels and contextualization, where where conservationists work to make sure the artworks are are perfectly clean and in good repair. So essentially, you can have an ideal experience of these things that are culturally important, um, or whereas or whereas a concert hall, you know, is built to have the best acoustics and be able to present music in the best context. Um, when I design a church, I feel that it's very much the same thing, that a church, the purpose of a church is to present worship, which is the same as saying to present liturgical art to the best effect. It's, it's, it's a, like a little art museum and concert hall all rolled into one, that the music should sound its best, the iconography should be presented to look its best, um, and everyone should work together to present both to God and to the congregation uh, liturgical art in its in in the in the purest and most elegant form of which the community is capable. It's wonderful. I, I I feel like you you began with this sort of core definition that you know art that is consecrated or set apart uh, explicitly for worship or for the praise of of God. And then you sort of uh, took that core and moved out a concentric circle outward to to speak about museums as also places that are consecrating or setting apart something uh, in, in this uh, carefully, literally curated way. Um, and then in the end, it almost made it sound like 
the church is a kind of a museum, which in, in one sense is an image that we try to get away from. Like the church is a museum means it's like this, you know, place to experience the outdated and the, <laughs> you know, but on the other hand, you've made it an attractive concept. The church is a museum, which is so carefully, uh, well, again, sort of curating um, the, the 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 words and the music and the movements and the furnishings that yes. that bring us to yes. I think it's in a sense it's the God. I think it's the the older sense of the word museum as a as a a muse, a place of contemplation, a place where you go to elevate your mind because the it is it is sort of an an, an arc of beauty and meaning. Um, where merely to en- merely to enter it is edifying, um, mm. and you know mu- museums in the secular sense of the world word they have some of this, but they're also sort of a repository of dead things that no longer that no longer serve a living cultural purpose, um, or 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 one might say they no longer serve a living god um, because mm-hmm. of, after all quite a lot of what's in art museums are liturgical art of extinct religions um, or or at least just liturgical art pulled out of a religious context um, right and right. and you know we we need that on one level but I think what what churches do is is in a sense far more important than that because we're, we're in a sense, exhibiting our liturgical art in a living context, in the service of the living God. And to me, that makes it all the more important that we do it really well. Um, yes. You know, it's, you know, people often say, you know, churches aren't museums or churches, you know, don't employ professional, you know, singers or artists, it's all volunteers, you know, therefore, we don't need to be held to high standards. And it's like, you know, I understand that on one level, but I think it's completely wrong on another level. Which is like, wh- why is it that an you know an icon of some extinct extinct Greek or Roman god that no one worships anymore, you know, it has a, <laughs> is lavishly attended to in a museum? It's kept you know meticulously clean, meticulously restored. You know, people gaze upon it with hushed voices and reverence. You know, and then in our churches we have you know icons of the living God whom we do honor, um, and yet I fear treat it with far less reverence, uh, far yes. far less deliberately. Um, the stakes couldn't be higher. I mean, uh, it, it's shocking that anyone would want to compromise when it came to the design and the art of anything within the church. Um, but back to what you just said about museum, it's a, it's a beautiful thing to kind of resurrect um, the true meaning of that word. So often I think we, in our uh, church world, have to sort of reconsecrate words that have fallen into disfavor, you know, like museum, you say that as if it's a bad thing, you know, relic, you say that as if it's a bad thing, you know, we love relics, you know, we, and um, uh, dogma is another one I'm frequently trying to defend as a, as a word of beauty and sweetness and, and um, doesn't have a popular sort of cachet in, in, in the world today. Um, uh, what what brought you into your uh, 
your field. I know you you studied art history at, at, at Tufts and then did an architecture degree after that as well. Um, what what led you to this area of of creativity? Well, I've been I've been telling people since I was five years old that I wanted to be an architect. Um, I've just I've always loved um, understanding how to make things, understanding how to how to design things, and I've always kind of specifically just liked buildings. Um, even from when I was a little child, I just I just found buildings quite fascinating. Um, I was not raised as a church-going Christian. Um, I found Christianity uh, when I was 13 years old, um, and that was actually through music. It was because I had taken up um, playing the pipe organ, and that got me into churches and meeting you know, people who love churches. And it was, it was someone I met at that time, um, who is now now actually an Orthodox monk, um, but at the time we were both teenage organ students, um, and he uh, he 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 led me to convert uh, to Christianity initially in the Anglican Church, um, and so for a number of years I was I was what you might call a, a high Episcopalian or an Anglo Catholic, and I, I absolutely loved the liturgical beauty, the, the ceremonial formality um, of, of that liturgical tradition. Um, and I still love it to this day. I think the, the, the English church um, and its, its, you know, its cathedral music composed for boy choirs, its, its, its pipe organs, um, its, its English Gothic architecture. Um, I think that's a, a system of, of, of liturgical worship that is unsurpassed in its beauty and refinement. Um, and so I, 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 I absorbed that for many years and, but subsequently my, my friend converted to orthodoxy. Um, he is, he is now, uh, known as Hiro Monk Herman, um, of the St. Econ's monastery community. Um, yes. I know him well. Yes, indeed. Um, <laughs> he 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 encouraged me to visit Orthodox churches. So I, I visited uh, some Orthodox churches here in America, OCA parishes, um, and and I also was traveling extensively in Europe. And as I got further into the into the east of Europe and started experiencing Byzantine architecture, you know the real the real thing from the Middle Ages, um, it started to really strike me that the the Eastern Orthodox system of liturgical art would be a really good fit for my sensibilities. Um, and the reason is that the Orthodox Church has maintained a a liturgical theology of 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 art that is much more much more specific and coherent than the Western Church ever has. Um, and what I mean by that is that the Western Church, Though it has always patronized the arts splendidly, it has never come up with a very clear explanation of what the liturgical arts are for, um, or or what exactly are the criteria for for success in the liturgical arts. And as a result, we see this progression of styles over the course of of Western art history. You know, moving from from Romanesque into Gothic, and then into Renaissance, and then Baroque, Neoclassical. And finally, finally, kind of crashing with twentieth century modernism, 
which is which is almost the inevitable end point of that experimentation, which is like suppose we just get rid of all of the liturgical art, you know, and and reduce it down to zero, and lo and behold, right. you can still you can still say mass in a church like that, because actually none of it was necessary to begin with. Um so all of this experimenting with sort of, you know, is it the Gothic system where you know, God is up above the church and it's all pointing upward to God or the sort of Baroque system where it's kind of a, a theatrical stage set to kind of emotionally convince you that you're participating in the beatific vision. Um, or is it the sort of neoclassical system where where it's all the sort of the beauty of abstraction, the sort of 18th century enlightenment vision that it's all it's all geometry and purity that, that sort of elevates your mind um in in a in a sort of theological abstraction you know all of these systems are beautiful they're all interesting but they're all going about the problem of what is liturgical art for in a very different way um so orthodoxy on the other hand i think has a lot more consensus as to what exactly the liturgical art is trying to achieve and and what it's trying to achieve is to make the inside of the church an, an icon of the kingdom of heaven, that it's trying to show you that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that it's already here. You don't, you don't arrive in it after you die. You participate in it now while you, while you live. And the saints are here among us. So we see them painted on the walls standing around us in church. And, and the angels are already singing and praising God. And, and we hear that in the choir singing. And, and we can smell the fragments of heaven with the incense. Um, and so Orthodox churches are, are constructed sort of massively and, and, and with introversion, so that when we're in the church, we don't have a lot of awareness of what's outside of the church. It's an inward-looking liturgical art that makes us feel enveloped by that beauty of the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> and we feel that if we go into a church and we start praying or we start singing, we're simply joining in with what was already there, that the community of saints and angels is always there, always worshiping God. And when we come into church, we we simply join in with that. We start participating in something that is not of our making, but is the collective work of the church and the holy hosts forever. Um, and this, this concept of liturgical art um, has been maintained pretty consistently in the Orthodox Church from the beginning. That's not to say Orthodox churches all look the same. There's, of course, lots of room for local expression, local cultural variation, and and lots of room for, for stylistic development over the centuries. But at least I think that core, that basic explanation of what is this even for, um, has been consistent through all times and all places in, in the Orthodox Church. And that's very exciting to me as a liturgical artist, because it means that when I, when I design something, I can actually step back and judge it by that criteria. Does it actually do the job that it is meant to do? When, when you step into this space, do you feel like you're entering into the kingdom of heaven? Does it support the iconography in that way? Does it acoustically support the music in that way that it all comes together as, as an icon of the kingdom of heaven? collectively worshiping God. 
And I think that's enough. That's enough of a sort of a criteria, enough enough of a design standard that we can actually objectively look at church architecture and the allied arts and say, is this right? Is it effective? Mm-hmm. Does it does it serve its purpose? And that's that's a question that the Western Church, I think, really struggles to be able to even ask that question. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a pretty high criterion, you know, is this the kingdom of God or not? Um, like I said earlier, the stakes are very, very high. Um, I feel like I should ask listeners to just kind of uh, rewind for the past five minutes and listen again to everything that, that you've said, because I think you've raised and and in some way addressed in a, in a very helpful way so many of the kinds of questions we bring to questions around aesthetics, around uh, sacred art, around liturgical art specifically, uh, including the very the consistency of of ethos, as it were, within Eastern Church culture, which does not necessarily impart um, a total stylistic consistency or that things will look the same wherever you are. All of that is just so, so interesting. It leads me to another question because you are a, a, a professional artist who is, is commissioned. Um, and I'm interested when, when someone first approaches you with a commission, what are the early conversations like? How are you kind of feeling each other out? What is what are these crucial early decisions based on for you? Yes, well, you know, of course, we don't want every church to look the same. It's a good thing that each project is a bit different. Um, and I try to tease out from the client what is it about this project that's going to make it different? What's sort of going to be our starting point to say this this building will have its own unique character and how do we justify that? Um, in my own work, I, I, I like to put a pretty big emphasis on expressing the local region. Um, that is to say the the geography and the cultural history um, of the of the the state or the city where the church is going to be built. Um, so sometimes that can be cues that come from the landscape. Um, is it a mountainous region? Is it is it flat? Is it heavily wooded? Um, and then we can look at the old world and we can, you know, say, we can, we can look at how, how people in the past have have made buildings appear to match the landscape. Because of course, that, that one of the reasons old Europe is so beautiful is because the buildings seem to, to be a natural outgrowth of the landscape. So, you know, the Greek islands, you know, the churches are, are painted white and they're soft and rounded and they sort yes. of mirror the forms mm-hmm. of the Greek islands on which they're standing. Mm-hmm. You know, and in, in Romania, where it's a mountainous wooded country, the churches have have, have pointy wooden steeples on top and, and mirror the shapes of the pine trees. In the Republic of Georgia, where it's all stony, pointy mountains, the you know, the churches mirror that form. They're made of brown stone and have conical roofs. Mm. Um, I will just jump in and just say this is one of the features of your work that I appreciate the most out of many that I appreciate, and that is your attention to the local 
Um, there's a, a building I'm thinking of now in kind of Pennsylvania Dutch country that completely looks like it's a, a part of not only the the physical landscape but of the cultural yes landscape yeah. that it, it just it shows a kind of a a pastoral dimension to your work and by pastoral I tend to mean listening like you 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 respect and listen to the other and want to um, ensure that that well there, there's actually there's a line in your website when you're describing um, your your work uh, which I love uh, even a single beautiful detail makes people feel honored by a building they know that it was put there for their enjoyment an acknowledgement of human dignity and the need for beauty in our lives you know and 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 you recognize that one person's detail is might be a little different from another's d depending on what their radar is what mm -hmm. their local that's right i don't mean to fill in too much of your <laughs> well that's right and the here. and the, yeah. the local cultural expression is probably even more important you know people need to feel like a building is their own; that it's their their own voice in worshiping God. Um, that you you know you can't just buy your worship out of a catalog. Can't just copy somebody else's worship. It has to be your own. And so I think it's very important that church buildings seem like a natural growth of the the building traditions that are that are specific to that region. Um, and and America is a America is a particularly interesting place to be working because we have a lot of different building traditions, a lot of different cultural traditions, depending on what part of the country one is in. We have the we have the historically English part of the country in the northeast, and we have the historically Spanish part of the country all along the south, all the way from Florida to California. Um, you know, and then we have regions of the country in the in the upper Midwest and the Northwest that that don't really have architectural history going back much earlier than 1880 and so so there's some interesting um sort of victorian industrial um influences in those regions that are you know that are a bit more a bit more complicated to to understand um but but just as specific and just as meaningful to the people who live in those areas mm. um mm. so yeah i do I, it calls to mind you know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we interviewed uh, Benedict Sheehan, the composer, and we asked him, you know, kind of what what his criterion or criteria were for church music. And he said, it should sound like church to the people who are going to that church. And I feel like that sort of describes um, something of what you're doing. It should It should feel like church to the people that are there. Yes. Is that accurate? It I would say that's an ideal that is mm. easier it's easier to frame that with music than it is with architecture. Mm. Um mm. and that's because architecturally um mod modern Americans tend to be very disconnected from their regional architectural traditions um far more so than their regional musical traditions. So you can you can be sure people at a church know what they think church should sound like. Um, you can't be sure that they know what the church should look like regionally. Um, mm. And this is often a a point of discussion, even contention, um, 
with my clients is that, you know, I may go to a place like Orlando and I have to kind of teach people what their cultural tradition is architecturally <laughs> because right. they probably don't live any architectural tradition. Probably almost everybody at the church lives in a, a pretty modern house that that's just sort of a suburban house that could be could be most anywhere and doesn't doesn't have any real good connection to you know historic architecture in the region and that that's typical across America so i'll have to you know tell people you know you do have an architectural tradition here but you probably haven't practiced it very much in a hundred years and you have to go back right. and you have to look at very old churches very old farm buildings um to see what your architectural tradition was before america basically just suburbanized and stopped caring about architecture and and so you know, sometimes there's some contention there will all say that, you know, because, you know, 200 years ago, a Spanish Baroque style church was built near Orlando. Um, and so that's really your architectural tradition is Spanish Baroque. And here's how we can take that tradition and make an Orthodox church out of it that speaks a local language. You know, people aren't automatically on board with that. They might say, well, that just looks like a Taco Bell to me, you know, or that makes me think of Mexico. <laughs> you know, that's that's right. that's not my tradition. And I have to educate them and say, you know, it, it maybe it's not your tradition, but it should be your tradition. That's that's <laughs> because when you look around Florida and you look at buildings that have been built by good architects who cared, who were trying to make something beautiful, there actually is a consensus among those architects that Spanish Baroque is the local Florida tradition. Um, and that, that consensus actually lasted for centuries. It goes all the way back to the first Spanish buildings that were built 400 years ago in Florida. And there was a big revival of it in the 1920s um, when the sort of arts and crafts movement, you know, built a lot of really beautiful buildings in Florida in a Spanish revival style. Um, and then, and then that kind of, there were re revivals of that again in the 1940s and 50s with all the great art deco architecture in Miami that often has Spanish details mm. mixed in. Um, and then even to this day, when somebody builds a high end, you know, luxury hotel or something in Florida, you know, it usually has Spanish Baroque details on it. So there's actually a consensus over 400 years that that's Florida's architectural tradition for high architecture. Um, but on the other hand, it may also be so uncommon to engage with that in modern life that, you know, that that's kind of my role is to culturally educate people as to what their own local tradition is. When um, looking now also at the name of your practice, New World Byzantine, New World Byzantine, um, it speaks of a kind of a two different worlds, perhaps, uh, with some intersection. And do you feel like your work is, is defined in some way by that uh, dialogue uh, of Byzantine, which is, let's face it, something of the past, mm -hmm. uh, and the new world? Uh, so is that part of the education as well? But before you even get to the education part, um, I know it's a rather big question, Andrew, but but uh, how do you approach that um, 
fertile tension yes. between the New World and the Byzantine. Well, Byzantine can mean two different things. In the, in the strict sense, it refers to the architecture of the Byzantine Empire, meaning essentially medieval Greek architecture. And in that strict sense, it's a, it's a very particular style. Um, and it's actually not one that I practice very much. I've, I haven't designed a lot of things that are Byzantine in the strict and narrow sense. Um, but in the broader sense, the word Byzantine has been kind of adopted by the Orthodox Church worldwide to refer to the, the sort of artistic heritage um, of the Eastern Orthodox Church. And in that sense, the word is being used uh, almost to mean ecumenical in the Roman sense of the word. That is to say, it is the architecture of the, of the universality of the Roman ecumene. Um, and that's an idea that, that I think is, is very pertinent to Orthodox liturgical art in general, is that the, it, it has a Roman universality to it about it. That even though Orthodox churches look different in every country, they're also kind of the same in every country. And the way in which they're kind of the same is, is essentially Roman, that they have, they have the, the round arched openings that was made universal by the Roman Empire. They have the sort the sort of basilical axiality um, that was typical of Roman civic buildings, the rows of columns and arches, uh, the central dome, the, the sort of the sort of idea of authority that everything's pointing at the throne of em of the emperor or the statue of the deity in a temple. that that whole language that is the essential framework, of Orthodox temple architecture, it's all Roman. Um, and the Roman Empire spread this language of, of authority in architecture all over the world. Um, and for that reason, to this day, people in all of these countries kind of look at Roman architecture and see it as their own heritage, um, see it as mm. ecumenical in the civic sense of that word. Um, right, right. And and I think that that that's kind of what the term Byzantine has come to mean to the modern Orthodox Church. That, but I had an interesting discussion with a Greek Orthodox priest recently. He was telling me, you know, our new church has to be Byzantine. Um, and you know, I was I was kind of trying to tease out what did he really mean by that because quite a lot of venerable Greek Orthodox churches in America, strictly speaking, are not Byzantine in style. They're, they're quite often more Italian Renaissance or Greek revival <laughs> in style. Right. Um, you know, and I was showing him that, that, you know, the, all these great Greek, Greek Orthodox churches that were built in the first half of the 20th century in urban centers, the ones that the Greeks, you know, hold up as their hi, hi, sort of historic monuments, architecture, you know, a lot of them, strictly speaking, as an art historian, are, you know, Italian Renaissance, not Byzantine, though they may have some Byzantine elements. They're not, you know, they don't really, they don't really look like a church that was built in medieval Constantinople. Um, and the, the the Greek priest, you know, I, I was worried I was ideologically challenging with that. And he said, no, 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 no. We all know, we all know that. We know they're not really Byzantine. When we say Byzantine, <laughs> we just mean that we don't want them to look Russian. 
okay. All right. <laughs> so now we're talking the same way. Yes, right. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, Hilarious. Yes. Wow. So that's on the Byzantine side, which is already uh, giving us this wider sense of what it means to be Roman. You know, of course, John Romanides said there's no such thing as Byzantine. It's just Eastern Roman. Exactly. Uh, but that's what it is. And and um, that that's a really important part of the piece, uh, Andrew, of New World Byzantine. And I guess uh, maybe, I don't know if you're done with what you were going to say, mm -hmm. but, but the next place I would go is then with that... Um, more careful and very, very appropriate definition of Byzantine, what do you do uh, in the New World? And whether that is a Spanish-influenced Florida or a, you know, an, an Amish-influenced Eastern, you know, Pennsylvania or, you know, uh, how does that meeting place happen? Well, I think ideally a church should always have that mixture of the universal and the local. Um, and that's what, that's what I seek to do in my work is I, I try to find the things that are, are locally specific to the area. And I try to find the things that are, that sort of have that universal um, Roman quality embedded in that local. Cause you'll find that virtually everywhere. You'd have to go somewhere, you know, extremely, extremely non-Western to find architecture that's not substantially Roman in its spirit. Um, and so I look, I look for, I look for confluences. I, I, you know, for instance, when I designed my parish here in Charleston, um, I tried to find aspects of old Charleston architecture that you also find in old Greek or Russian architecture. And I found a number of them uh, in terms, you know, Charleston buildings tend to be thick and masonry and stuccoed, and they tend to be painted bright pastel colors like churches in St. Petersburg. Um, and, you know, they, they tend to have a certain cornice detail where the bricks are laid at 45 degrees to make a sawtooth pattern. And that's, mm. that's like an old 18th century American bricklayer's detail. But you also see it all the time on both Greek and Russian churches. Um, so, so I identified a number of characteristics that are local, but are also consistent with, with things I wanted to bring in from Eastern Orthodoxy. Um, gardens are a big thing you know one of the most distinctive mm. things about charleston mm. is its garden culture um downtown charleston is one of the most beautiful cities in the world to take a walk because every old building has a has a really lovely formal garden and they're presented right to the sidewalk that uh, like everywhere else in the world formal gardens are walled in and private and you can't see them from the public realm but in Charleston, everybody's formal garden is right there in their front yard, and you just look through an iron fence, and it's right there for everyone to enjoy. It's it's unique to our city. And so our church in Charleston, you know, I kind of set it back into the middle of the lot, and we completely surrounded it with, with formal gardens, brick-paved paths, cast-iron benches, um, and it's it's a it's a huge ministry at our parish is maintaining all that because because formal gardening is a lot of work, but it's yes. I, we all felt that it was the, like the most important thing that our parish specifically could do because it's it's the way of engaging the public that 
is the local Charleston way. It's kind of our locally specific form of of honoring the people on the street, the city at large, is by is by sharing formal gardens with mm-hmm. them. How wonderful, uh, Patricia and I had the the blessing of, of visiting, and uh, we were properly blown away by the. The, the church and that began with you know with the whole approach uh, and and walking through the gardens beholding the gardens and then walking into the church uh, that too is a, is a whole that that too is a liturgical process you know the uh, in father Alexander Schmemann's uh, kind of crowning work the Eucharist he speaks of the liturgy of preparation which isn't just the prothesis right but the the movement of people, from their homes to the church, um, and that's often going to be uh, through a, a consciously designed space. Uh, and it's wonderful how you draw attention to that. Um, as you go further, when you talk with a uh, someone who's commissioning a building, uh, you've spoken a couple of times of, of educating, but then I think you've kind of tempered Lest anyone thinks that you're basically there to teach them what is, teach them what they want, <laughs> um, you are in some way um, working with them to cultivate um, a common vision for this, um, one in which perhaps each party has something to offer, and you have something very, very specific to offer um, with your with your background, with your aesthetic, with your training. Um, do you want to talk? I, maybe I'm not phrasing this question all that helpfully, but uh, we, we've often talked, you and I, about kind of the, the, the need to sort of cultivate on the part of parishes a sense of what they actually want in a, in a building, yes. in a worship space. Well, sure. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes parishes have specific ideas that just because they like them, you know, maybe the priest was recently in Bulgaria and he saw a church in Bulgaria that he he really liked something about it and he says you know you know this particular floor plan's a little unusual but it really seems to suit you know pastorally how I want to run this church um you know can I have this floor plan you know and I may say well sure you know that's that's a that's a good starting point you know to make your church different from any other church we'll start with that and you know I'll figure out how to make everything else look appropriate um, that's fine. Now, I would say the big, the biggest problem with what churches want or think they want is that they they're reaching they're reaching too far. They're reaching beyond their means. So, you know, almost every church I go to, they you know they start out by telling me some some variant of you know we want a copy of Hagia Sophia or we want you know it to have seven onion domes on the roof. Um, you know, and they, they start outlining, you know, a building program that is way beyond the means. It, it's impossible that they could afford to build something like this authentically. And, you know, unfortunately, many architects don't push back against that. They say, I'll give you exactly what you want, and I'll figure out how to do it in a way you can afford, which is why we end up with so many Orthodox churches that you know, look pretty grand from a half a mile away. And when you get up close to them, oh, it's all fake. You know, it's 
the it's just a it's just a steel frame building. It's covered with you know styrofoam with a skim coat of acrylic stucco. You know that that gold dome on top is like you know gold anodized aluminum and looks really looks looks really cheesy up close. You know the inside. Yeah, maybe it's got some arches, but they're all just you know sheetrock and the the columns are fiberglass and you know the wind. Mm-hmm. You know it mm-hmm. and it's just like. So they, they've got they basically got what they asked for, but they also got something that's basically just modern junk that's completely uninspiring because the materiality of the building, you know, is 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 built like any one of the mill cheap commercial building nowadays, which I which I think is really terrible. It's it's the worst thing you can do architecturally is build yes. something that yeah. that's sort of pre, pretentious in the sense of pretending to be something that it can't possibly really be. It's that's artistically, that's an absolute killer. Um, so my role speaking with building committees is to, to rein them in, you know, what is realistically your means, your budget, and then say, you know, what, what can we build beautifully and authentically within your means? And what I do is I try to show them pictures of, village churches in the old world and say, you know, I know you've all seen pictures of the Russian cathedral with, with nine onion domes. I know you've all seen pictures of Hagia Sophia. Have you seen pictures of what ordinary village churches in those countries actually look like? And often they haven't They could be, because Americans are not often well-traveled and they, they haven't been to Greek and Russian villages and they don't realize that very often you know, the ordinary churches that ordinary people built in Orthodox countries are quite humble. You know, they might not have any dome at all. Um, they might just be a relatively low rectangular building, a few windows down the side. Um, and they might they might actually look pretty uninteresting in a photograph sometimes. But when you actually visit those churches, they're wonderful because the walls are five feet thick and the stucco is all lumpy and hand-applied. Um, and the, the, it's got a wooden roof that's made of hand-hewn timbers. Um, and it, you know, and it's it's dark and smells like incense inside. And, you know, there's, interest, yes. there's interesting little wrought iron, you know, details that people lovingly made. And, and everything, everything feels like an act of love in that building. And that's what matters. It's that it's that materially, you know, when you actually lay your hand on that building, you know, you you feel you feel eros for it. That is to say, you feel a a a physical attraction, a physical love of of the actual stuff that the building is made from. That's what makes it a sacred building. Um, Indeed. And Indeed. that that's that's almost the only thing that matters is is is, <laughs> is doing it doing it in a way that you will feel physically attracted to that building. Mm. Mm. That that perhaps answers one of my next questions, which is you've raised criteria that are as lofty as possible for if if we want to call it success in the design of a of a church building, and that is to 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 be the kingdom of God, uh, to evoke the kingdom of God. Uh, so, how when we would enter such a building, how would we know that that there is success in that endeavor, that or that we have begun to attain to that massive uh, criterion? What are the signs other than? I mean, maybe it is just feeling, but but what are the can can we give any 
word to that? Well, I can, I can, I can certainly set out sort of design standards that are typically the mark of a successful Orthodox church. Um, you know, one is that the walls seem thick and massive, um, and that the windows tend to be kind of up high or or at least covered with decorative grills. Because that the combination of those two things is what makes a church feel introverted and fortress-like. That you should feel like you've gone somewhere safe and secure and, and sort of walls you off from any awareness of time and awareness of the concerns of the world outside of it. You know, so the, the, it, it, should, it should be massive, fortified, and the windows should let light in without letting, you have, without letting your attention out. Um, and then in terms of the, you know, the quality of light and shade in the church, it, it should have kind of a warm glow at the center of the space, and it should kind of recede into more mystery and shadows around the periphery so that the space seems like it's glowing from within, that the, that the light of God mm. is within our hearts, that the kingdom of God is there within the space. Um, and so we, so Orthodox churches don't do things like huge stained glass windows because the stained, stained glass windows, they're really beautiful, but they imply that the light is outside, that the light of God is coming into the church from out there. Orthodox churches tend to try to express a sense that the light of God is within the church, that this is where it comes from. And that's one of the reasons we have an iconostasis that's all gilded icons, and we have icon stands, and we have brass candlesticks, and we have chandeliers that hang very low. All of this kind of concentrates the light and the reflections at the core of the church, at the core of the liturgical space, where it seems to come out to the people who stand in the in, in side aisles, which are typically more dimly lit around the periphery. Um... You know, and then acoustically, of course, churches should have a rich reverberant acoustic so that when the choir sings, the sound seems to come from everywhere. It seems to be the, the icons of the saints and angels painted on the walls are singing back to us. Um, that's, that's, a, that's, you know, that's a dramatic effect, um, a sort of piece of stagecraft, uh, but, it's, but it's important for giving that sense that, that the kingdom of God has come together in worship with us in the space. You, you simply don't get that if it's a dead space and you can hear exactly where the sound is coming from. Um, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that indicates some really specific elements yeah. that, that have been found to work uh, towards that sense that we get. Yeah. When we enter a church, yeah. So I, I have mm -hmm. I have quite a lengthy list of these sort of design standards that tend to be the hallmarks of good churches that I keep in mind as I'm designing. But I don't really want regular people to be keeping those in mind. Regular people should be able to experience a church from the heart, noetically rather than mentally. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and when I think when when one goes into a really good Orthodox church, one feels one feels that sort of overwhelming embrace of the love of God sudden, suddenly all around you. And that, that should be challenging the way the Last Judgment is challenging. Um, because, you know, the point, the point of a church is not to make everybody feel comfortable. You know, we, there's other kinds of architecture designed for that, um, you know, 
lounges and spas and things. <laughs> the point of a church is to <laughs> right. the point of a church is to challenge us to con- conform the state of our souls to the to the love of God, and 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 you know, you know of course icons we know are, are painted with a mixture of expressions, a sort of challenging and judgmental expression combined with a loving and welcoming expression. The architecture is iconic in the same way, that it, it, it speaks with that intimidating voice of authority that, you know, the throne of God is here, um, you know, and that that's expressed partly with the axial formality of the space, the, the, the hierarchy that's literally built into the church's form. Um, it's partly acoustic, you know, a, a resonant space forces you to act reverently because if you just if you just walk into a resonant space and you're just you know stomping your feet and you're you know you're chit-chatting to your friend you know you will immediately be exposed as being you know acting like an obnoxious ass because everybody can hear that and you know the guy who does that everybody looks and stares at him like what's wrong with you because in you know intuitively if we have any social sensitivity we know that when you go in a resident space you know you you keep your voices hushed you know you mm-hmm. you step you mm-hmm. step gently you you stand up straight you act reverently um that's that's one of the ways the architecture tells you how to behave you are in the presence Indeed. of the throne of god um it's almost like you know answering the the, the earlier question of how do you know when a building has kind of met that something of that standard perhaps some of that criteria is in watching people encounter it how do how do they look yes uh, well people people you know I, are they hushed are yes. they standing straight or are they it's it's interesting you raise that yeah well i don't think yeah. churches should make everyone react the same way because mm. because me you know right. the last judgment doesn't make everyone react the same way um, you know, and I, and I have I have watched when people enter a, a really a really intense liturgical space. Um, people react intensely. You know, some some people just smile and feel perfectly at home there. Other people actually look frightened. Like you know, they'll hang out at the door threshold and they won't go any further in because it's intimidating to them. Mm-hmm. Some people seem to be overwhelmed with compunction. You know, they'll they'll actually sort of get down on their knees and, and cry. Um, I've seen that happen twice, actually. I saw that happen once um, when the Metropolitan Museum of Art had its um, show, The Glory of Byzantium. And, yes. and it had on display a couple of um, more than life-sized icons um it was uh, saint john chrysostom and saint basil the great and they were painted by andre rublev about eight feet tall um and i mean they're absolutely overwhelming you know the way the way a good icon should be you feel like the saint is literally there before you um in your space when you see the icon, it's not, you know, it's not like looking through a window and the saint is somewhere back there behind the picture plane. The saint is like right there in your room with you. That's, that's what icons seek to do is, is imply a, a real encounter in your space. And these icons did that overwhelmingly. And the way they were placed in the museum, um, you, you didn't see them from a distance. You turned a corner and then suddenly you were right there in front of them. And, and 
it was extremely interesting at, at the museum show watching watching people every all sorts of people as they turned the corner you know some people fled some people like you know sidestepped yes. and tried to get away from them you know and I, I, I saw one woman who was you know normal museum goer a sophisticated looking woman and she's you know reading all the little labels and examining everything and she turned the corner and she just fell down on her knees weeping and she was so embarrassed this was not the kind of reaction this woman is supposed to have and you know the other time i saw it was in was in rome um there's a there's an ancient church in rome um that has a a very small Byzantine style chapel called Saint Zeno's Chapel, um, and it's it's like it's like a tiny tiny miniature Hagia Sophia. It's only about it's only about ten feet square, and it's completely done in in mosaic icons. And it's it's the most perfectly Byzantine space I've ever seen in the world, overwhelmingly beautiful, and and you see the same thing happening there almost routinely that people are looking at this big this big church which is beautiful but in a normal way and then they turn through this little narrow arch and they find themselves in this chapel and they they just fall to their knees crying and it it happens again and again <laughs> and that's that's what it should be like if you were to suddenly find yourself face to face with god um and so if if churches are successfully being an icon of the kingdom of heaven, that's that's the kind of power they should have over people. Indeed, <laughs> Andrew, uh, it's been a very quick hour. <laughs> uh, where did it go? Um, is there? We could speak endlessly. I feel. And is there anything you regret not saying or? putting into the conversation before we before we sign off well uh, you know i i would just you know offer i don't know if advice is the right word or if i would say i would implore churches churches that are listening to this um you know take the work of presenting liturgical arts very seriously um you know, this advice doesn't just apply to Orthodox churches, whatever, whatever type of church, you, you know, you may have some hand in running, um, you know, whether it's an Episcopal church that's, you know, presenting Eng English Gothic lit liturgical art, or whether you're an African-American church presenting gospel music, um, whatever you're doing, the only point in doing it is doing it well. Like, you know, that, that's, that's basically the rule with art. It's like, Art done poorly, it's probably better to just not do it. Art done really well is the most precious thing on earth. And, you know, if, if we're all going to get together on Sunday morning and, and do all this liturgical art, the only reason to do that is if we do it as well as we possibly can. And in a, in a sense, that's kind of easy for me because my, my architectural design work is done in an office where I can take my time and I can do it to my standards and then hopefully it gets built right and then my work is done. This is, it's harder for, for like choir directors and priests and, and all of the people who are at the church who have to redo their art every single time there's a service. Like every, every time the choir director directs a service, it's 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 new again and you know every time it has to be as good as it possibly can be so it's it's a it's a great burden liturgical artists need a lot of support for that choir directors have to be paid a professional salary you know i will 
I'll be the first to say that, that that is more important than good church architecture. A parish, a parish can survive bad architecture. It can't survive a bad choir. Bad choirs are church killers. Um, so pay your choir director, pay a real iconographer to paint real painted icons. You don't have to do a lot. Let, you know, own, you know, quality is far more important than quantity, but anything artistic you're going to do at your church, do it as well as you possibly can. Spend the money to do it right. Um, that's, that's my message. <laughs> Andrew, thank you for being here. Thank you so much. <laughs> this podcast and the Institute of Sacred Arts at St. Vladimir's Seminary are supported in part by the Henry Luce Foundation and by people like you. Please drop us a line. Consider how you might help us out. Thank you for to those who have helped us out. And find out more about today's guest, Andrew Gould, at instituteofsacredarts.com slash luminous, also at newworldbyzantine.com. Luminous was recorded at Surge Audio online. Thank you, Surge. I'm Peter Buteneff. Thanks for joining us. 